Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. My name is Seyrun. I live in Reykjavik, Iceland. I read The Guardian every morning. I realized that this is something that I would like to pay for. It's a service I value. It's journalism I respect. The Guardian brings me the quality I like. So I realized, hey, this is something I, I should be a part of. Hello, my name is Brian and I live in Norwich. I decided to become a supporter of The Guardian newspaper because I like the quality of its journalism. And I also felt it was time to make a stand because I'm getting tired of the journalism I'm seeing in other newspapers that are owned by rich owners where there is a lot of bias into their editorials. I hope this inspires some of you to become supporters too and in your own small way, make a stand. Hi, my name is Wesley. I live in uh, Utrecht in the Netherlands. And I recently decided to become a Guardian supporter because it's well one of the few news sources that I feel is still delivering accurate news. You know, it feels like I can trust the Guardian. For me, that's, I think, the most important thing. And especially when they said we don't want to do too much advertisements and we don't want to become dependent upon other people can, that can manipulate the news, I felt that it was good to support our democracy. If, like Sigrun, Wesley and Brian, you would like to join the growing number of readers who support our independent journalism, then go to gu.com slash support slash podcast. The Guardian. This wild soundscape was recorded in 1989 at the Osa Peninsula in Costa Rica. Now we can hear the same area in 1996, seven years later, after clear-cutting a logging practice in which most or all trees in the area were uniformly cut down. Later we hear from soundscape ecologist Bernie Krauss, who's made these and many more recordings over the last 50 years, capturing the health of habitats and devastating changes in the natural world. But first, hello and welcome to We Need to Talk About Extinction, the latest of our monthly podcasts in which Guardian journalists and industry experts dig into a topic suggested by Guardian supporters and answer their questions on it. I'm Lee Glendening, Executive Editor for Membership at The Guardian. When our columnist George Monbiot wrote recently in The Guardian about the demise of many aspects of the natural world, he cited a UN report that our use of natural resources has tripled in 40 years. The response we received from supporters was urgent, as it so often is with environmental concerns. We've received messages from all over the world about the loss that is evident in your local communities. And today we want to discuss local changes as well as international ones. What we might notice on a local level can be acute, and we can be less aware of how often this is being replicated on a global scale until we share the information. You wanted to know about how development can be better balanced with conservation. 
With finite resources available for conservation projects, who decides which species should be saved and how is that decided? How can governments better commit to implementing sustainable, collaborative and international policies and how can all of us be moved to action and help make a difference? The answers, the complexities and hopefully the actions are to be discussed by our panel today. We have Dr Nisha Owen, who runs the Zoological Society for London's International Edge of Existence programme, focusing on species prioritisation, conservation action and capacity building. Tony Juniper, Executive Director for Advocacy and Campaigns at the World Wildlife Fund UK. And George Mombio, Environmental Writer and Campaigner and Guardian Columnist. Hello to our panel. Hello. Hello. Hi. First, let's hear from Guardian supporter James on conservation efforts in Sumatra. My name is James Askew. I'm a researcher at Carnegie Institution for Science and the University of South- Southern California. And I work in Indonesia with the Sumatran Orangutan Conservation Program, or SOCP. Last year, we described a new species of orangutan, the Tapanulia orangutan. And the way we did this is by comparing measurements of a male that was killed um, by farmers after he was raiding their crops. It's really sad. And the genetics and vocalizations from this population with Sumatran and Bornean orangutans. We felt we had enough evidence to describe a new species. There are only about 800 Tapanulia orangutans left, and they're living in three fragments of rainforest over just 1,500 square kilometers in North Sumatra. They're really right on the edge of the extinction. There is some deforestation and hunting of the orangutans, and we're working towards protecting the species with government management units, and we've made plans to reconnect the fragments with corridors. But the biggest problem we're facing at the moment is that development has started on a hydroelectric dam, and that's going to destroy about 10% of the habitat and will mean that the fragments can't be connected. And this means that the species is guaranteed to go extinct. The populations are just too small to be considered viable if they can't interbreed and meet one another. Originally, the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank were going to fund the project, um, but after SOCP ran impact assessments, they backed out. Uh, So the project is instead being funded by the Bank of China under the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. A local group, Wali, is challenging the permits for the dam in court, and the local communities that we work with who are living downstream are really unhappy. They're protesting the effects the dam is going to have on their ability to access water, and they need this water for drinking, for farming, and for fishing. Ultimately, I think the hydro dam should be cancelled. The ecological and social effects are really negative. And people think of hydroelectric as being this green technology, but this project really, really isn't. China should be seen as a litmus test for how sustainable China's Belt and Road Initiative actually is going to be. James told us about the hydroelectric dam that was one of a number of development projects funded by the Bank of China and sanctioned by the Indonesian government that will have massive negative effects on some of the last populations of biodiversity, Sumatran tigers, Sumatran elephants, the rhino and the orangutans. There really isn't much habitat left for these species, so making them a priority is critical for their survival. I'm really interested in what you think can be done here, and perhaps you can explain a little bit about what um, China's Belt and Road Initiative is and the relationship to uh, sustainability and conservation. So the Belt and Road Initiative is one element in what will be a global explosion of new infrastructure being built over the coming decades. Trillions of dollars will be going into road building, into electricity supply, into ports, airports, all of which is geared towards 
economic expansion of, of a traditional kind. And what you see with the Tapanuli orangutan is one example of how that infrastructure can impinge on the last remaining areas of natural habitat uh, that are supporting some of the fragments of biodiversity that remains in some of the most diverse parts of the world. And I think the question is, going forward, is not do we need new infrastructure. Of course, we do need to upgrade infrastructure. The question is, how are we going to blend that process with the conservation of biodiversity on Earth? Because we know we have a mass extinction uh, unfolding, and one of the reasons why that's going to happen is because of this kind of investment. I would question whether we need new infrastructure. Sure, we need to repair roads and railways and stuff, but you know, if you look at the world and the incredible fragmentation of habitats, the way in which infrastructure rips open pristine environments, um, allows in people who can then rip them apart even further, to my mind, we've got too much, not too little. Mm. And, you know, there is no end. There's no natural and obvious end to this process. Um, there was someone writing in The Guardian a couple of years ago saying, we in Britain must adopt the um, Chinese Belt and Road approach and we must be part of it. And he was using the word must, and I think, why must we? Well, what do we get from this? Already we have ridiculous levels of air pollution. We have massive impacts on our quality of life. We have completely unsustainable impacts on climate breakdown through the use of our existing infrastructure. Why do we need more? And this, I, I thought, quite, quite brilliant statement by James, really illustrates the wider problem that um, we are committed to economic growth even when it impoverishes us, even when it dispossesses us, even when it destroys everything it claims to be supporting. When it claims to make our lives richer, clearly in these cases it is making our lives poorer. Mm. When it claims to relieve deprivation, clearly it is causing deprivation, as the people downstream of this dam will find. And yet it has become the god at whose altar we're supposed to worship. And that is what we need to confront and address. I think the key thing here is to focus on how we effectively reconcile conservation with development. And I think it's really important for governments in particular to work together and to engage under kind of collaborative mechanisms. So, for example, the UN Sustainable Development Goals in a way to encourage wider adoption of, you know, looking at how we can mitigate the effects of infrastructure and development. And also looking as well at the impacts of those variety of different threats on biodiversity because you know infrastructure and development is is a great threat but currently the greatest threats still continue to be hunting agriculture and logging so there are a variety of things that that are really key for us to focus on the, the trouble is though isn't it that infrastructure allows in the hunting the agriculture the logging into protected areas against all the uh, commitments which governments might make to protect those places you build a road in or you build a dam with the associated infrastructure and you break open that place for people to move into and do all those other things it's often the infrastructure that comes first isn't it it's true it's true but then how would you counter such activities i mean what can we practically do to mitigate that or to encourage kind of diversion of activities yeah. under such a major initiative the, the, the tricky thing is I, I agree with George's assessment of the current economic model and the extent to which it's destroying what is most precious and irreplaceable the difficulty however is in some countries where people remain 
in quite poor conditions and for example in this case electricity is going to help to lift people out of poverty provide opportunities for education the question would be under those circumstances can we do something better than a hydroelectric dam and I don't know the answer to that in this case but this is a familiar uh, dilemma that occurs particularly in the developing world I think in this country it is a question of upgrading and making better infrastructure and putting green infrastructure in place instead of concrete we've got lots of opportunities for doing that but in some of these countries where the economy is still quite small and there's lots of people living in pretty poor conditions then we probably will have to find some way of, of lifting up their uh, their ability to, to, to have some comforts but without the biodiversity impacts. Absolutely. And having worked in quite a few developing countries and seeing communities on the ground that are, you know, affected by biodiversity impacts, the key things to them are, you know, being able to feed their families, to be able to have, like you say, electricity, to be able to have access to healthcare, to be able to have access to schools. Sometimes they need roads to do that. So how do we how do we ensure that they're able to sustainably develop while also protecting biodiversity in their regions? Yes, I mean, of course, the last thing I'd want to do would be to deprive people of the necessities of life. It's absolutely essential. But these huge projects, helicoptered down by enormous international agencies, often who don't have the interests of local people at heart at all, but are just looking for stupendous new ways to make piles of money, have blighted the world. I mean, they haven't brought development to people. They've often undeveloped people. They've often brought um, destruction and destitution to people. And the World Bank is still doing this stuff. Um, It's interesting that in this case, they decided not to fund this project, which Mm. probably reflects decades of campaigning Mm. by people against Mm. them using our money to destroy the world we love. On that point, George, and, and on the point, I think, more broadly about community James mentioned how inspiring local groups were in Sumatra in terms of ultimately if there's going to be a change it's going to come hopefully from action on the ground and that only local groups in Indonesia could stop the level of deforestation um, that is occurring. Do you, do you agree with that and do you think sort of the agency of local groups and community can make a real difference in this case? So um, I've spent some time in Sumatra mm. over, over the last few years on the ground trying to, to get to grips with some of these questions of deforestation. And it has to be said that it's extremely complicated. Many different actors, including the national government, the state government, the local communities, international NGOs, local NGOs, the donor community, including the World Bank, the Bank of China, the bilateral donors, and trying to work out who's in the best position to be able to advance the conservation cause it's not easy and when it comes to the local communities sometimes yes they are allies but sometimes there might be an ancestral claim on a piece of land that the local community wants to develop as a rubber plantation and I saw an example of that and you know that is not necessarily going in the same direction as the conservation I, I think probably what is needed is a consensus the best we can aim to match between all those different groups to come to a, a similar joined up view about how you can serve at the level of the landscape this is the key thing the mention there of the need to reconnect those pieces of orangutan habitat is a really good example you can't do that just by the local communities or the local government or another entity it needs to be everybody working together to be able to come to a common view about how to how best to manage the land and that is very very hard and we can't even do it in the uk actually and you know maybe if we started doing some of that stuff here we'd be in a better position to advocate to other countries 
Well, I've got a great example. Um, one of the projects that we support um, out in Ghana uh, on a species, a very poorly known species called the Togo slippery frog, which is found only in this tiny patch of forest in Ghana. The local communities have donated land and the government has just gazetted a forest reserve, a protected area, to be able to preserve this amphibian and the biodiversity that's found there. So it is, it is possible for these groups to work together. And I think it's, it's very much about empowerment community empowerment and empowerment of um, the variety of stakeholders and ensuring that everyone has um, an equal voice and that it's not biased in favour of you know these larger and more powerful institutions mm-hmm. and individuals. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about hunting and, and poaching, Tony. Um, James told us that even though the orangutans have relatively low frequency of hunting, the problem with orangutans specifically is that they have very low life histories and will only have one infant every eight years or so which means that killing 1% of the population can leave the population destined for extinction uh, within 50 years or less. So even hunting at, at a low level is a, is a critical threat. So, so in addition to these pressures arising from, from infrastructure development and expansion of, of um, commodity crops like oil palm, there is still a big problem for many animals in, in many tropical landscapes arising from poaching. And some of that is for local food consumption. Some of it is for the international trade in various products, including pets when it comes to, to young orangutans. And so th- this, this is causing a, a terrible problem to many animals and obviously those that are slow breeders are particularly affected and the orangutan is one but in those same landscapes is the Sumatran rhinoceros down now to about 100 animals critically endangered they produce a calf about once every four years and on top of the habitat fragmentation that's being caused by all of these land use pressures those animals are being trapped both deliberately in order to get the horn which is immensely valuable uh, but also um, as an accident as People try to catch deer and pigs to to eat for food. It's a really, really tragic situation, and that animal now hovers on the brink of extinction, as does its relative, the Javan rhinoceros. These two animals now going very close to, to the final abyss of extinction, and it is in the case of those really the poaching, which is the main problem. And I mean, over-exploitation, so hunting, um, the illegal wildlife trade, as well as agriculture and logging are the key threats today for many, many species. So we're looking at um, a recent study found that something like 70% of uh, red list assessed taxonomic groups, the key threat was over-exploitation. And it's just amazing, the speed of it. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary that we're seeing all this happening within years, not not decades, but within years. Um, I remember as a kid reading stuff saying, you know, if we don't deal with this problem, these animals could become extinct within a century. And I thought, oh, how terrible is that? And and now I'm living to see it. You've written columns about sort of seeing different animals on your, different species and insects on your summers and those changing Mm -hmm. over Mm -hmm. time and just not seeing them anymore. And I found it, the way you wrote about that, so moving. But then, you know, we see so many other people writing about their summers and their winters Mm -hmm. when they're not just not seeing these creatures Mm -hmm. anymore. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. your point about the speed, the fact that within people's life not even within a lifetime within like small spans of seasons this is changing i mean it's when you look at the summer we've just had with the wildfires raging with the arctic ice melting with a lot of the stuff that climate scientists were warning us might come along by about 2050 happening already you realize that even some of the more extreme predictions by environmentalists which were written off as scaremongering 
by almost everybody, including by other environmentalists, might not even have gone far enough. I worked in the East Nark Mountains in, um, in Tanzania in 2005 for a couple of years and I went back in 2015 and you can see the difference. You can see how um, degraded, how um, areas have become deforested. You can see that um, the populations of species are less. You can, you can see tracking just over a period of years people's impacts on the environment and it is unsustainable resource use. Okay, let's hear now from Guardian supporter Paul Horneck on the imbalance in species conservation. My name is Paul Hormick. I live in San Diego, California. At least once a year, I monitor rare and endangered plant species at the mouth of the San Diego River. Because of my volunteer work, I'm curious as to why some species are given a, a lot of effort to preserve them, while others, it just seems like there's not very much effort at all. As, for example, the uh, California condor, which in 1997, we'd already spent over $20 million to preserve the, the condor, which in today's dollars would be about $30 million. And in the last 20 years, we've probably spent millions more. And at the same time, I see plant species along the estuary where I survey, these plants are right there at the estuary and nobody even seems to know that these are rare and endangered species. With the bird, I mean, it is a majestic bird. I'm glad they're, they're trying to save it. If you've ever seen one, it's really quite remarkable. Their wingspans are 12 foot. You could stand two men on top of each other and that would be the wingspan of a California condor. They're just really majestic birds. Whereas these plant species, the ones that I work with to protect, they're just these small little flowers in the sand dunes. And I just don't think people just go, wow, when they see that. Now, there are several questions within this. One is about why we take some species for granted while others are cherished. And another, let's focus on this first, is how we're deciding which species to save. Nisha, this is partly what EDGE does um, by ranking species by conservation priority and even highlighting the models and areas and, and methods used to do this. Can you tell us about how this works? Yeah, absolutely. So um, interestingly enough, uh, conservationists historically very much focus on charismatic species. Um, but there's actually been very few ways that to scientifically and systematically prioritise species for conservation. I mean, there's been a few in terms of umbrella species or keystone species or landscape species. But what we have done is we have looked at the overall diversity of life and we've created a scientific framework that allows us to assess a species value in terms of its um, evolutionary history. So how many years of evolutionary history do individual species represent? And that gives us that measure of value. And we combine that with um, a measure of urgency, which is effectively how threatened is that species. And by prioritising those species for certain taxonomic groups, so we've done this for all terrestrial vertebrates, and we've also done it for corals, we can say, well, by focusing on this, this, these species within these groups, we can preserve that overall shape of the tree of life and that overall diversity of life. And these species are very often, they're weird and they're wonderful and they're species that we may never have heard of. So a great example is the Chinese giant salamander, which is a newt that grows as big as a man. Um, and basically, these species are ones that should be complementary to conservation approaches. So, you know, while the charismatic species, I think, will always have a very special place in people's hearts, there's actually a lot of really interesting, fascinating species out there that we just don't know about. And when we share that information with the public um, and other conservationists, they are actually very interested. So I think conservationists are culpable as well in terms of only going for those popular species. Um, 
so yeah, so we're able to rank them in each of these taxonomic groups and um, something like 10% of all terrestrial vertebrates are priority edge species. So we know that by focusing on those, we're able to um, preserve all of those millions of years of evolution that have occurred on Earth. Paul was telling us how there's now between 400 and 500 Californian condors and he makes the point that he's so glad there's been these efforts to save this incredible bird Um, but how do we make people care about flora or insects less charismatic species? So um, we don't know for sure but there's something like eight to ten million species on earth Uh, we are undergoing a mass extinction We don't know how many are being lost or at what pace, but we know it's more than has been the case for a very long time in the Earth's evolutionary history. And that embraces plants, animals, insects, fish, lichen, everything. And to get people to understand all of that probably is going to be beyond us as the conservation community. But probably what we can do is bring people into the discussion and to elevate their understanding by focusing on some uh, species and some issues that really paint the bigger picture. I really love the idea of the EDGE programme, focusing in on those animals where we've got a particular opportunity to preserve, as you say, Nisha, the shape of the tree of life. That's a fantastic approach. Other things connect with the public in a way which, which is more cultural than to do with the scientific story. And the Californian condor is one, the African elephant will be another, and the tiger is one more. And I think one of the things... We we need to understand is how best to use those ambassadors and those icons to bring people into a discussion which is going to create support for the big changes which are needed for conservation to succeed for all 10 million species and that's about changing agriculture it's about stopping global warming as we discussed before it's about making infrastructure beneficial to wildlife rather than destroying it and creating that public demand is probably going to be done most effectively through some examples So the tiger, the panda, the elephant, these kinds of things. And of course, at the same time as we are working to save those animals, what we have to save is the landscapes they live within. And all of those flowers in the dunes are very much part of that tapestry of life, that web of life in which the tiger and the elephant are located. And so I think so long as we don't become completely distracted by the big and eye-catching and are trying to tell the bigger story about stopping the mass extinction at the same time as conserving the entire systems within which these big animals live, then I think we've got a chance. The, The amazing thing is that almost everything is now at risk. So many species which have got common in their name. I mean, if you take the common eel, it should now be called the critically endangered eel. I remember when I was a kid, you know, around this time of year, the the rivers would be literally black with eels. There, There were times when I would go down to a clear stream and you could not see the bottom of the stream because of all the eels migrating to go on their great journey um, to the Sargasso Sea. And, and now, despite the fact that some people are still catching and eating them, especially elvers, the baby eels, this species is right on the brink of extinction. It's like the passenger pigeon. But we see, you know, whether it's a common gull or the common toad or the common almost anything, it's no longer common. And, and we're seeing this full-spectrum assault on the living world. So while Nietzsche's absolutely right, we have to prioritise, and, and I love the, the way you're doing that prioritisation, I think it's, it's a really savvy way of, of, of approaching the problem, we also have to recognise that just about everything 
is up for grabs. This is a massive economic assault by one species on the lives of all the other 8 to 10 million. And it's driven above all else by this growth imperative, by this idea that we just have to keep growing, regardless of whether it does us any good or not. Yeah, I mean, huge numbers of species are threatened. Something like 30% of amphibians are threatened with extinction, 13% of birds and 20% of mammals and 20% of reptiles. So we really need to be doing something about it. I think the issue might be is that in focusing only on these high priority kind of charismatic species, we fail to see that there is a real lack of conservation attention. So of the edge species that we prioritise, something like 70% receive little or no conservation attention. Historically, conservation really has actually focused on primates, carnivores, um, elephants, hoofed mammals. So we do need to start flying the flag for these species. And I think there's some great examples of how you can engage people in species that you think are really not not that attractive or not that interesting. So uh, the purple frog is another great example. So this is a tiny little purple frog that lives um, in the Western Ghats in India and it spends its entire life underground apart from one day a year when it emerges during the monsoon to breed. And it's obviously, you know, one of many amphibian species that need to have these very specialist microhabitats. So if you were preserving just for elephants, you wouldn't necessarily be preserving the, the microhabitats they require. But they've really um, empowered the local community to feel a sense of ownership over the species by drawing a parallel with um, Mahabeli, who is this, um, this king in Hindu mythology, who is very kind and generous and protected um, his, uh, his people. And he, in Hindu mythology, he returns to Earth only one day a year. So they've been able to draw those kind of cultural comparisons it doesn't just have to be kind of the big charismatic species that are you know that are furry and have big eyes that we focus on but we also i think we have to remember that it's not just about species extinction is it it's also about population extinctions and and it's about the sort of structural ecological extinction where ecosystems just cease to function because they don't have sufficient numbers of their keystone species and and of other species which are crucial to sustaining food webs and you know when we look at what is now being described as biological annihilation which is this extraordinarily rapid collapse of vertebrate populations around the world we we see it as a parallel crisis to the species extinction crisis which um has effects which ramify just as strongly and of course then also feeds into the species extinction crisis absolutely and the the living planet report in 2016 said that we'd lost 50 percent of vertebrate populations in the last 40 years so if we carry on with those trends i mean we're losing species it's terrifying and actually the, the the living planet report talking of the decline in the abundance of vertebrates is one thing there's actually an even more terrifying estimate which which i think speaks even more strongly in terms of the impact that humans are having and it's the estimate that 10,000 years ago 99.9% of the vertebrate biomass so that's the birds the mammals the reptiles and the amphibians on land breathing air 99% of the weight of that on earth was wild animals fast forward to today and it's estimated that 96% of the air-breathing vertebrate biomass is people and their domesticated animals. We've basically seized control of the entire productive capacity of life on land, and the mass extinction is the most dramatic consequence of that. It doesn't have to be like this. We can change, but we just need to understand the magnitude of, of what's happened. 
and actually use the past tense, what's happened, because what's about to happen uh, is just going to be the last stage of it. This has been building up for a very long time. If we wish to be able to conserve the fabric of life within which we are all embedded, people sometimes make the mistake of thinking that we're somehow disconnected from all of this. We are as embedded in it as a tiger or a panda or a condor. We're part of the same system, and that system is rapidly being wound down in ways that are going to have consequences for people as well as all the animals. But this now, I think, you know, this, it's a political story in the end. It's about changing the trajectory of policy. It's about changing the economic system, as George has pointed out. And to do that, we need public support. And that's why we've got to get much more awareness about what is happening and has happened in order to be able to lay the foundations for the dramatic change that's needed. And it's not a small change. We're not going to solve this through a few more national parks or a bit more conservation. We've got to change the food system. We've got to shift our economic system. We've got to change our consumption patterns and we've got to stop global warming. No small task. Which should keep us all busy for a while. Um, (laughs) Many of our... You're listening to We Need to Talk About Extinction. Coming up in the second half, we discuss the impact of tourism, pesticides, and what you can do to support biodiversity in your local area. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. In this week's books podcast, we discuss race and identity with the philosopher Kwame Anthony Appiah and ravens. Yes, that's right. Those big black birds that are held so sacred in British folklore that it's believed the nation will fall if they ever forsake the Tower of London. So raven master Chris Scaife has a big job on his hands. Meet them both, or should that be all, on the Guardian Books podcast. Welcome back to We Need to Talk About Extinction. We've received messages from all over the world about the loss that is evident in your local communities. I just want to take you through a couple of them. Veronica described uh, the once deep sound of frogs at night um, echoing across the lake near her home. Mm. Ian misses the butterflies, the red admirals, the Mm. peacocks, the small tortoise shells, the painted ladies uh, that used to cover the Budlia bushes. Chris told us of his fears for the ash tree in northern Virginia, many of which are being killed by the emerald ash borer, an invasive beetle from Asia. And uh, the connections um, that were described were really um, profound and moving and clear, I think. And our next supporter, um, Joe, is going to speak to this respect and fondness. My name's Joe Morland, and I live on Portland in Dorset. I grew up in the 50s, and in that time, I've noticed a huge decline in insects and animals in the countryside. 
particularly driving along and seeing them on the windscreen and having to clean them off the front of the car, insects, and I'm seeing hedgehogs running along the side of the road, frequently seeing them. Hedgehogs are now in steep decline with a 50% reduction in the countryside and 30% reduction in um, suburban areas in the last 15 years alone. And it's all down to what we're doing in the country we live in. For example, in agriculture, we're spraying with pesticides, insecticides and molluscicides so that there are few worms, insects, snails and slugs for wildlife to eat. We concentrate on arable monoculture, which reduces pasture land where hedgehogs and other mammals forage. We remove hedgerows, which they use for foraging, nesting and roots from place to place. Our own roads and railways create barriers in habitat. Our house building and development remove habitat altogether, and we insist on enclosing our gardens and paving them over, which further reduces places where hedgehogs and other mammals can find food. And it's all down to us. I work as coordinator of Hedgehog Friendly Portland. It's something I can do. I feel like extinction is such a big subject and untackleable. I feel that I can do something on Portland by encouraging other people to look after hedgehogs and by looking after them myself. David Wembrace, the survey officer with the People's Trust for Endangered Species, talks about how hedgehogs, uh, like butterflies, are seen as indicator um, species for the health of the natural world. So when we see a big decline in hedgehogs, it raises concerns about the quality of the environment more generally. George, um, this is something you know a lot about. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I love that description. Um, And... One of the things that she mentioned was pesticides. Um, and now, you know, we've had these huge companies like Bayer and Monsanto and others telling us how wonderful these pesticides are because they are highly effective. You spray your glyphosate o- o- over a lawn and it'll kill everything. It'll kill all the plants on, on contact. Um, you only need a tiny fraction of a fraction of a gram of neonicotinoids and you'll kill the insects on, on, on your crops. Um, and of course, all the other insects as well. And then you turn around and say, "So, um, why do you think all the wildlife is disappearing?" Oh, haven't a clue. It's an amazing thing. You know, we develop things which are called biocides, which whose purpose is to destroy life. And then we react in total amazement when life has been destroyed, and there's almost nothing left. And it, you know, a hedgehog is another one of those species, like the eel, whose the threat to their populations would have been inconceivable when I was a kid. They were just part of the warp and weft of the living world that surrounded you. They're everywhere. I loved hedgehogs. I still love hedgehogs. And to see that disappearance and to see it driven, yes, above all by agriculture. I mean, that is that is the driving force. It's 70% of the land area of this country is agriculture. It deploys this incredible battery of chemicals to destroy life. That is the purpose of them. There's been massive habitat loss, agricultural change. You know, when other industries do bad things, we are able very clearly to point to them and say, this industry must be properly regulated, it must be held to account. But somehow when agriculture does the same thing, we look the other way. If you look at river pollution, for instance, the by far and away the greatest cause of river pollution now is dairy farms. And if if chemical companies were doing to our rivers what dairy farms are doing, there would be a national outcry. There was a national outcry when chemical companies were doing it, with the result that it's almost been brought to an end, pollution of rivers by chemical companies. And instead, now, farms are doing it where, where the, the big corporations were doing it before. But because we've got this image of farming 
um, handed down to us in storybooks about, you know, about 80% of children's storybooks are about a rosy-cheeked farmer with one cow and one pig and one horse and one chicken and they all live in harmony together and there's never any mention of why the animals might actually be there and what might happen to them. We, we, we just let farming off the hook and we've got to begin to see it in the same light as we see other industries and hold it to account by the same measures. And it's not just in the UK. I mean, globally, agricultural activity is the top threat to 62% of um, species that have been comprehensively assessed by IUCN. So we need to be looking at farming methods um, on a global scale um, and how we can mitigate we the do. effects. Yeah, we do. It seems that we, we kind of go from, from a, an escalation uh, of, of impacts that begin with deforestation that happened in this country 2,000 years ago, and then progressively we've intensified to eradicate the wildlife from farmed landscapes, and the more successful we become, in, in inverted commas, at farming, the less there is of any other life left in the landscape. With the most recent innovations in terms of GMO crops using glyphosate, the only thing left in the landscape that's that's being farmed is the crop. And actually, it's interesting to, to note, you know, even though deforestation was largely complete in, in England uh, by the time of the Roman occupation, most of the wildlife survived until the middle of the last century. And it suddenly went off a cliff and is still falling off of that cliff as a result of the post-war tendency towards monoculture and then ever more sophisticated toxic materials being used to, to wipe out the residual wildlife. But there is still, you know, the, 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 there are still pockets of of animals and plants that remain. So we are still in a position where we could restore what we once had. And I don't think that's about looking backwards. I think this is about building the kinds of uh, environments that we would want to hand on to our children. This is very much about the future, not some kind of nostalgic look back to a rural idyll that probably never existed, but thinking about the future and how we're going to adapt to climate change, how we're going to make people's lives enjoyable and inspiring, and putting the wildlife back has to be a part of that. So we can do it but the thing we've really got to change is agriculture this is the thing that is most problematic and of course and George has written about this uh, extensively that comes back to some of the behavioral choices of us as consumers as well and probably one of the biggest things that has led to the uh, acceleration of environmental impact by farming over recent years has been the rise of meat and dairy consumption which has been absolutely um, uh, 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 a, a steep curve uh, as people have become richer in different parts of the world tend to eat more more meat and more dairy and of course big marketing budgets behind those kinds of foods we talk about rising human population which is currently about 1.2 percent um, the rise in livestock population is currently about 2.4 percent at current rates of growth by 2050 there'll be 120 million tons of extra human being and 400 million tons of extra farm animals and it's simply unsustainable we cannot possibly keep eating like this not not just in terms of the impacts on all the other species on earth but it um in terms of how we can possibly provide food for ourselves as well if we're diverting so much land and so many crops into the mouths of animals which have inefficient conversion you know you you, you put in a certain amount of protein and carbohydrate and you get a quite a lot less out the other end because of the animal running around and metabolizing and respiring and the rest of it we simply cannot cater for everyone's greed as well as everyone's need and greed is displacing need it pushes up 
the prices of grain and pulses because they're fed to livestock rather than fed directly to human beings. And the places which should be our great wildlife refuges are instead used very often for extremely wasteful and extensive livestock production where there's enough animals to wipe out all trees and um, a, a lot of other wildlife but not enough to produce any appreciable amount of meat but we're just using almost every corner of the planet to 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 produce this stuff so tony's absolutely right we need to see a restoration we need we need a rewilding of areas which are wastefully used at the moment destructively used but could be our great wildlife refuges and i feel that rewilding is one example of the positive environmentalism we desperately need to promote because so often um what the environmental message seems to be is follow us and the world will be slightly less crap than it would otherwise have been whereas uh, you know and of course we need to fight the bad stuff the bad stuff is coming at us from all angles at the moment and we we need to fight as hard as we can against it but it massively helps that fight if we can give people a vision of a better world that we're striving towards a better world than we have at the moment and rewilding i think is part of that you um contributed uh recently to chris packham's um people's manifesto for wildlife mm. and in terms of positive change could you take us through what some of the strategies and concepts within that document are well it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful wide-ranging mm. report which draws on a lot of expertise people in lots of different fields uh, basically stepping in where government and it has to be said some of the big conservation groups haven't been speaking out nearly loud enough and haven't been proposing I think um, policies which are nearly radical enough so absolutely it touches on agriculture it touches on conservation and very often the failings of conservation it touches on infrastructure it touches on fisheries which you know are the other great huge issue which we haven't yet discussed where you know if you're talking about the decline of vertebrate life the fishing industry probably comes in at number one there doesn't it just absolutely stripping apart the greatest area of the planet which is which is the oceans and a lot of other woefully neglected um, areas. And so alongside the manifesto, we had our People's Walk for Wildlife. About 10,000 people walked through London, scarcely covered by the media, believe it or not, <laughs> tragically. You know, because we behaved impeccably, we, we stayed off the news. And we really want to try to raise the heat on these issues and to put them where they belong, which is at the centre of political discourse, at the front of people's minds, not as some totally marginalised issue. I mean, here we are in the middle of a planetary emergency and we scarcely ever discuss it. The BBC has now pledged that on two of its programmes, one on Radio 4 and one on the World Service, once a week it will talk about climate change. Oh, great. You know, well, it's progress as far as the BBC is concerned, which has been extremely hostile to the subject all along. But it talks about business literally every minute. Every minute, there is, on one BBC channel or another, there is a discussion of business going on. And that's much less important than whether we're actually going to get through this century, whether we're going to have a habitable planet in which business and everything else can take place. But all these issues of environmental breakdown at the moment are completely marginalised and excluded from discourse. And so part of what the manifesto is trying to do is, is, is to bring them right into the centre of it. And, of course, it's going to be a big struggle. I think it, political pressure is very important, and particularly when it comes to kind of um, controlling business activities. But equally, I think engaging um, popular support and 
getting the public motivated. A lot of the issue is that we're expecting them to gain their knowledge from the media. And if the media are not covering these activities, they're not going to be able to do that. Um, and I think they feel very overwhelmed in terms of what kind of choices do I should I be making and what can I do as a single person. So one of the things that we also do um, at ZSL within the Edge of Existence programme is we focus very much on capacity building. Mm. And so historically we have focused on supporting uh, conservationists within um, countries, often developing countries that have limited capacity to conserve their resources. But more recently we have been focusing on how we can reach and raise awareness of these issues with the general public. And one of the ways that we've done that is through a collaboration with United for Wildlife where we've produced an online learning platform. Um, learn.unitedforwildlife.org where people can take online courses which have videos on all sorts of different subjects to do with conservation you know what are the issues to do with the oceans what are the issues to do with the illegal wildlife trade and also what can you personally do to help you know not just getting involved in campaigns and things like that but what kind of um, sustainable choices can you make how can you change your lifestyle and how can you support these activities on the ground because we felt that there was a real absence of guidance and information for people to be able to do that. And I think it's all very well. Um, we obviously feel very strongly about some of the actions that are happening at a business, industrial, political level. But until we can motivate people to join that fight, it's very difficult for us to progress. Totally. I, th- I think that's the key to uh, to all of it, really, if you think about it. it, it the, the political uh, choices that, that are made in Parliament and everywhere else they are really a reflection of, of what people were, were voting for in terms of the parties and the individuals who are in Parliament. If you think about what the businesses do, they know that they're in the spotlight all the time on social media and everything else and the kinds of products they produce. They're watching to see you know, what's got consumer acceptance or not. So education of the public is vital. And I think not just education in the sense of giving people more information, but inspiring them to want to join in. And that's where you know it's really very important to give a sense of hope and uh, possibility as well of sharing the information about the, 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 the gloomier side of this and the fact that there is a planetary emergency underway. So this is quite a tricky challenge and actually um, uh, it's one that, you know, it, it, can be, it can be met and has been met. I've, I've seen various things over the years, we all have, where people have been able to come together and to, to push a big change over the line. The Climate Change Act is, is one case in point that did do that. I do think, though, that what we need to do in order to be able to coalesce, hopefully what will be an uprising of demand for for more positive outcomes we're going to need a new movement for nature and the people's walk for wildlife was a great uh, start in getting people together you know there was no alignment there of any particular organization the manifesto was you know a great uh, coming together of different ideas and we're going to need much more of that because in the end we're, we're going to need to have a much bigger body of of demand for for wildlife to come back than we've presently got uh, but it can be done. I think we should be filled with optimism that, you know, we, we've got so much information now. We know what works on the ground. It's really a question of getting people to demand that now at scale. Let's hear now from a couple of Guardian supporters, Desi and Andy. Uh, my name is Desi Sievers. I'm 16 years old and I'm a resident of Los Angeles, California. I think local and global conservation efforts are very important. As a lot of our birds migrate and habitat is being globally lost at an alarming rate. Without bird conservation worldwide, many of our birds will further decline and eventually there'll be no more birds to see. 
My name's Andy Drum. I'm a biodiversity specialist and environmental safeguards consultant with the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank, mostly, working a lot in the tropics, particularly in Latin America and the Caribbean. While some corporations and governments have introduced some policies favorable to nature, they tend to be weak when it comes to implementation. For example, a very small number of tourism companies manage millions of of tourist uh, journeys around the world every year. They have an outsized influence on the destination governments that host their clients. It's very difficult for a, a small Caribbean country or a Central American country to implement a policy, even if they have it on the books, It's very difficult for them to go up against an international tourism corporation that's proposing to bring a million visitors a year to their country. There's one case in particular I'd use to highlight that, the cruise industry, a very dirty industry consuming vast amounts of fossil fuel. They play off destination countries against each other. I was working in Belize a few years ago, and Belize became renowned as an ecotourism destination, a very positive uh, approach to nature conservation and sustainable development. But protected areas, national parks and so on, which are the big attraction in, in Belize, as they are in many countries, we're not really covering the costs of tourism management. The impact that tourism has on a national park can be significant. And when the Belizean government proposed to increase the cost of permits and entrance fees for visitors and tour companies, a major cruise line threatened to withdraw from the country. And so the necessary increase to cover the costs of tourism management were never made. So if we start with Andy's point... Yes, the world would be a far better place if all of the rules, laws and policies that have been adopted were actually implemented. And then that comes down to uh, both in, in terms of, you know, the politics, what level of priority does this have? And in the business world, you know, what level of risk and reward do we attach to these things? And in both cases, unfortunately, uh, this set of challenges fall quite far down the list. If you look at, you know, the delivery of nature conservation in Britain at the moment, you know, the the, 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 the official bodies have had their budgets cut in half. And there's a whole raft of laws and regulations they should be implementing. They simply don't have the resources to do that anymore. And so, you know, th- this, I think, comes back to a, a question we were discussing a moment ago so about public demand. How is it possible that there can be such a gap? Why is it allowed? Why do the politicians and the companies think they can get away with this? And I think probably we have to go back to the public and to be spreading some more information about some of these subjects and maybe, uh, you know, getting people to be thinking about which companies they do want to take a holiday with and, you know, to be thinking about these issues during elections when manifestos are being written and we can point to the gap between what was promised and what's actually been done. Mm. And then a shift in power and influence over um, tourism priorities and ecotourism, perhaps. Indeed, uh, ecotourism can be a force for good, uh, but you can't just have people turning up and looking at some uh, natural wonder then clearing off in in a cloud of smoke on a cruise liner. You do need investment in the basic resource in the in the tropical forests, the coral reefs or whatever else it is that people are coming to look at. And if those things are going to be kept intact and the countries need to be getting a proper incentive and and part of the economic benefit that's coming from that. And I think too often, you know, ecotourism, it's very lucrative for some of the companies that are uh, taking people on holiday, but actually less lucrative for the communities who are receiving them. 
Andy also made the point about Environment Ministry is responsible for implementing what could be favourable policies about conservation and sustainable use of resources, which tend to be the most badly funded of all ministries in particular governments. And so typically uh, they lack the resources to do the job they're supposed to then do. Are there examples of um, governments prioritising sustainable longer term um, policies of conservation within the tourism industry that, that you think we could learn from? Well, Costa Rica is one that I've seen uh, that, that, that emerges as a country. That, that did join the dots. Mm. They invested in a proper national park network. They increased their forest area. They put conservation and wildlife tourism on the national curriculum so that youngsters coming out of school could go and work in the industry. And they found very good ways of capturing the revenue back into the country by having local companies doing it. And they've blended this with a green infrastructure program, which is linked to water security and the protection of, of the country's agriculture and power supply. Mm. Uh, from 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 sustainable uh, renewables. So this is an example which I, I think you know could inspire uh, other countries to to see the possibilities. But it did rely on political leadership from the president's office with a sound economic case behind it. Yeah. It was a very active decision. And many of these small countries, I mean, they don't have sufficient resources to implement many policies, let alone conservation-orientated and environmental policies. I mean, look at us here in the UK and wanting to put more money into the NHS. It's always going to be those kinds of trade-offs. How do we, how do we encourage people to consider the environment to be as important? We could tax the rich more. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I mean, in the UK, it's um, just as much of a mess as anywhere else in some ways. Um, we have a, an almost complete collapse of the administrative capacity of the statutory agencies, which are meant to be monitoring our nature conservation areas. Um, Natural England is just in free fall at the moment. Natural Resources Wales is in the same state. Um, staff are totally demoralised and not allowed to do their jobs. Um, they And there's, you know, so people can just rip apart conservation areas at the drop of a hat because no one monitoring anything, no one's enforcing it. Um, there was a leaked government document saying, um, well, we hope to be able to um, actually protect 37% of our sites of special scientific interest. And you think, what? Wait a minute, you're meant to be protecting all of them. You've got a, 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 an actual legal duty to protect all of them. Um, and it's just not being met because they don't see it as a priority and it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about you know unless you get this stuff in the front of people's minds and make it politically impossible for governments not to act for the protection of our supposedly protected areas then they're just going to keep taking the piss. And to Desi's point, a single country could plough money and effort into local conservation, but for migrating birds, you then require international collaboration and joint policies to protect those bird species. So how attentive do you think governments are being to, and conservation bodies indeed, are being to um, international collaboration on these fronts? I mean, these policies, these international instruments exist. There's the Convention on Migratory Species. We've got the Convention on uh, Biological Diversity. We've got CITES, which is um, the Convention on International Trade. And... Um, um, there's a major illegal wildlife trade conference happening here in London next week. So there are um, ways for governments to um, support these kinds of policies. But what we want to do is ensure they have more teeth. So ensure that they are able to deliver on their promises to conserve um, biodiversity. 
indeed more more teeth more resources and also crucially more ambition and and when it comes to the global picture and wwf naturally we're a global federation that's been trying to do this for for getting on for 60 years now is to foster this kind of cross cross government cross industry cross regional collaboration the thing that we're looking forward to with most excitement is a series of international meetings that will take place in 2020 when we're hoping that we'll see a significant lifting up in the ambition that governments collectively are showing. So for all of its faults, we did have a step forward with the Paris Agreement in 2015 on greenhouse gas pollution. We're hoping to see a similarly significant step up on wildlife and the protection of nature in 2020 when governments come together to renegotiate their targets under the Convention on Biological Diversity. So this is a twin treaty, if you will, for the climate treaty, but I think it's significant that most governments have not even heard of it, never mind most members of the public. So we've really got some work to do in the next couple of years to get some focus on that. We want prime ministers and presidents to be talking about the need for an ambitious deal there, again, bringing us back to this idea of a movement for nature and getting more demand in front of the politicians. Uh, so there's an opportunity there to, to do more of this. But again, the uh, question of, of implementation and the political will is always there, even if we do have a strong agreement. At the start of this podcast, we heard two wild soundscapes recorded at the Osa Peninsula in Costa Rica, showing the effects of logging on biodiversity. Bernie Krauss recorded these and many others. One of Bernie's favourite recordings will close this podcast. I'd like to thank our panel very much, Nisha Owen, Tony Juniper and George Monbiot, and of course all of the Guardian supporters who provided our questions and shared their thoughts. Keep an eye out for our next podcast call-out in the next couple of weeks, and if you'd like to email us with your thoughts on what we should tackle, you can do that at we need to talk about at theguardian.com. I am Lee Glendening, and We Need to Talk About Extinction was produced by Stuart Silver. My name is Bernie Krauss. I'm a soundscape ecologist. This marks my 50th year recording natural soundscapes. So I have probably 15,000 individual critters identified as part of that collection, part of those voices. But I'm sure there's a lot more in there that I haven't quite identified yet. Over 50% of my archive comes from habitats that no longer exist and are completely silent, or they've been so radically altered by human endeavor that they can no longer be heard in any of their original form. This was recorded in Borneo at sunrise. I was there to record orangutans, but this happened to be so beautiful and haunting to me that I just couldn't resist spending the time trying to capture it. And these are gibbons duetting. And the Dayaks say the gibbons duetting is what causes the sun to rise in the morning. It's so beautiful. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.